Our first scripture reading for today is Judges chapter 6, verses 33 to 40. Listen now to the word of the Lord. Now all the Midianites and the Malachites and the people of the east came together, and they crossed the Jordan and encamped in the valley of Jezreel. But the spirit of the Lord clothed Gideon, and he sounded the trumpet, and the Abizrites were called out to follow him. And he sent messengers throughout all Manasseh, and they too were called out to follow him. And he sent messengers to Asher, Zebulun, and Naphtali, and they went up to meet them. Then Gideon said to God, If you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said, behold, I am laying a fleece of wool on the threshing floor. If there is dew on the fleece alone, and it is dry on all the ground, then I shall know that you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said. And it was so. When he rose early next morning and squeezed the fleece, he wrung enough dew from the fleece to fill a bowl with water. Then Gideon said to God, Let not your anger burn against me. Let me speak just once more. Please let me test just once more with the fleece. Please let it be dry on the fleece only, and on all the ground let there be dew. And God did so that night, and it was dry on the fleece only, and on the ground there was dew. Our second reading for today is Judges chapter 8, verses 22 to 35. Then the men of Israel said to Gideon, Rule over us, you and your son and your grandson also, for you have saved us from the hand of Midian. Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you, and my son will not rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. And Gideon said to them, Let me make a request of you. Every one of you give me the earrings from his spoil, for they had golden earrings because they were Ishmaelites. And they answered, We will willingly give them. And they spread a cloak, and every man threw in it the earrings of his spoil. And the weight of the golden earrings that he requested was 1,700 shekels of gold, besides the crescent ornaments and the pendants and the purple garments worn by the kings of Midian, and besides the collars that were around the necks of their camels. And Gideon made an ephod of it and put it in his city in Ophrah. And all Israel whored after it there, and it became a snare to Gideon and to his family. So Midian was subdued before the people of Israel, and they raised their heads no more. And the land had rest forty years in the days of Gideon. Jeroboam, the son of Joash, went and lived in his own house. Now Gideon had seventy sons, his own offspring, for he had many wives. And his concubine, who was in Shechem, also bore him a son, and he called him Abimelech. And Gideon, the son of Joash, died in a good old age and was buried in the tomb of Joash, his father, at Ophrah of the Bezrites. As soon as Gideon died, the people of Israel turned again and whored after the Baals and made Baal Bereth their god. And the people of Israel did not remember the Lord their God, who had delivered them from the hand of all their enemies on every side. And they did not show steadfast love to the family family of Jeroboam, that is Gideon, in return for all the good that he had done to Israel. The word of the Lord. Um, welcome. Um, before I begin, just a uh, quick announcement. Um, Beginning uh, June 9th, uh, we're going to have the uh, morning Bible study. 
Um, we're going to be going over the parable of the sower for four weeks. So it's just a, just a four-week study, and so I want to uh, invite you to uh, join that if you're uh, able. Uh, it's in preparation for our VBS, um, because our VBS is going to be focused on the parable of the sower, uh, as well as for our team going to Kenya. Uh, our teaching is going to be uh, centered around that as well. Um, so if you can join us for that, that would be great. Um, last Sunday... Um, at least a few of you uh, commented that you liked my uh, preaching um, without notes and um, without a suit and tie. And so if you enjoyed that, um, please come to Kenya with me because <laughs> I'll be doing that every day. So you'll see me without a suit and tie every day for a whole week. So uh, I mean that seriously. Please come because um, otherwise you're going to have to wait till next year's uh, picnic service uh, to witness that again. All right, uh, let's pray together. Uh, God, thank you again for, uh, for this day that you have made. And, and we pray now, uh, in the hearing of your word, we would uh, learn about Gideon and uh, the things of his life that we might apply to our lives. And uh, hearing God, help us to obey. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. So this is now the fourth sermon uh, in a series of sermons I'm preaching on the book of Judges. And as I mentioned last time, Gideon is the fourth of six major judges uh, in the book of Judges. And they all follow this pattern of uh, sin and then suffering for that sin, uh, usually by oppression by one of the local uh, enemies. Then the people cry out to God, they uh, make supplication to God. And then God hears their cry. He sends a savior, a deliverer, a judge. And then the land has a kind of uh, rest or a pseudo peace, shalom, uh, for a period of time before they forget about God once again and the whole cycle repeats in a downward spiral. So this is now the fourth time uh, we're seeing this. Uh, Before we get to our reading today, let me kind of reintroduce you to Gideon. His, His story takes up four chapters uh, in the book of Judges, so it's, it's quite a big and important story. Uh, many scholars think that this is a central story of the book of Judges. His name Gideon uh, means, uh, by the way, hacker, a hacker. Not, a, not the cool computer savvy guy hacker, but someone who like chops or cuts. Um, he probably got the name because he chopped down his family idols. And uh, as I mentioned again last time, uh, he's not someone who we expect to be a deliverer of Israel. We first met him in a wine press hiding from the Midianites in fear. He's fearful. He's defeated. He doubts God's word. Uh, You know, he he asks God for an additional sign despite the fact that, you know, there's a messenger of the Lord, that God is speaking to him. Fire comes from a staff and burns up his offering. But he's like, no, I, I, I want another sign. And if you attended uh, FG this past week, you uh, studied the battle against the Midianites of how God pruned a very large army of 32,000 men to just 300, um, who, unlike the 300 at Thermopylae, actually won the battle against the Midianites, uh, this massive Midianite army of 135,000 people. Um, So what you heard in the first reading this morning is what happened right before that battle. And I want to talk about this just as a setup for the the last passage. In preparation for that battle that Gideon has to lead, chapter 634 says, as you heard, the Spirit of God clothed Gideon. The Spirit of God clothed Gideon. 
Now, that's a really interesting way of saying that, right? Because it doesn't say, uh, as we might say, that Gideon was filled with the Spirit of God, or that Gideon was empowered by the Spirit, or even that Gideon put on the Spirit of God. Rather, it says that Gideon, or that the Spirit of God, clothed Gideon. In other words, it's the Spirit of God who put on Gideon, not the other way around. The Spirit of God possessed Gideon. That's what it's getting at. Right? So, so imagine the Spirit of God putting on the clothes, and the clothes uh, is, is Gideon. That's what's going on. So, so you can imagine for the Spirit of God, for God, this is, this is terrible, right? It's like if you're, you know, you got to put on baby clothes to, to go to work. It doesn't fit very well. Gideon is terrible. He's, he's like the leftover clothes. Of all the, of all the people that God could have chosen, of all the faithful people, of all the, the brave people, of all the people with military experience, God chose Gideon. He's not the p- person you want to go to war with. And, and yet God does, and that's precisely the point. God is saying, even with these clothes, I can deliver my people. I don't need to go to the top military school to draft the the best uh, soldier. I just need Gideon to come along and do your small part of trusting me. And so even though Gideon is not well-connected, well-known, has really no qualifications to do this, the people must sense the presence of the Spirit of God And thousands respond to his call to join in battle. And so while all this is happening, even though the Spirit of God is with Gideon, Gideon remains doubtful. And he asks for this this famous double fleece sign. Right? He says, God, I'm gonna put this uh, fleece. So you know, imagine kind of a giant sponge. That's the way I think of it. He puts the sponge in his front lawn, and he says, if you really want me to do this, I want you to make the sponge wet, filled with water, but I want all the lawn to be nice and dry. That'll be proof to me that you're really going to do what you said you're going to do. Right? So he wakes up in the morning, and he touches the, the lawn, and it's nice and dry. He picks up the sponge, and he squeezes it, and a whole bowl full of water fills. Right? And it's like, wow. Now, you would think that that would be enough. That that's a pretty good sign. Like, God, wow, thank you. Let's go to war. But no, not Gideon. Now, remember, this is not the first sign that he's received. He's already talked with a messenger of God and God himself. He saw fire coming from a staff. He saw the, the messenger of the Lord just, just disappear in the thin air. God spoke to him directly in a dream. The Spirit of God clothed him, right? He thinks of himself as the least, a nobody, and yet thousands respond to his call for battle. Like, that ought to be enough. And then this this sponge filled with water, that ought to be enough, but it isn't. So he he asks God, and he knows it should be enough, right? He says, God, don't be angry, but I'm still a little doubtful. And so he asked God to do it the other way. Let all the ground now be wet and let the sponge be dry. You know, I think this is a case where like, you know, God, you, you ask God to do something and God does it and your mind immediately thinks, well, there's, a reason, there's an explanation for that. 
right? Well, the sponge was probably wet because, you know, maybe it rained last night, everything got wet, now in the morning the sun was bright and hot, so the ground dried up first, and so there's some water left in the sponge. But that's, it wasn't really God, it was just, just nature, right? So he says, God, let's, let's do it the other way. Make the sponge dry, completely dry, but all the ground's going to go. Now, now that's, maybe that's something. And amazingly, God does. God does that for him. God indulges uh, Gideon's, right? Because you would think that at that point, God's like, man, I'm going to get somebody else and just, just zap him, right? <laughs> but God puts up with it. And I know that some people like to refer to this story as a model of how we might or ought to seek God, you know, God's will for our lives to sort of put out the fleece, right? To ask God to do something, to, right? God, if you really want me to go to church this morning, you know, let there be sunshine, right? Like, oh, it's raining. I guess God doesn't want me to go, you know? Um, if you really want me to go on this mission trip, send me a sign. Um, you don't need a sign for that. You don't need an extra sign for that. If you want an extra sign, like, just do it. Right? You and Gideon, all of us, we know God's will. When people ask God for a sign to prove God's will, it's just really a sign that they don't trust God's word. And that is precisely what is happening here with Gideon and what we are being told, really, this is not an example to be followed. This is not, you know, keep testing God. You know, keep pushing God to see if he'll give you more and more signs. That God, you know, that is not what is going on here. This is not a promise to us that if we keep asking God for signs, that God is going to keep on putting up with us. And so, you know, Gideon, again, now, so after... The second sign with the fleece now, you would think, okay, now he's got to be confident. But again, he's not. If you, if you uh, were in FG, you read about how God tells him, okay, now I want you to go and fight. And then God says, but if you're still afraid, sneak into the camp and you can get more confidence. And so, of course, Gideon is not going to say, no, God, you gave me plenty of signs. I trust you. I'm going to go to battle. He says, oh, one more sign. Yeah, let let me go check out one more sign. So he goes into the Midianite camp, and he overhears some of the soldiers talking about a dream, about this giant barley bread, you know, rolls down and knocks down a tent, and they they interpret that somehow as, oh, that's Gideon, and and we're going to be defeated. I mean, it's, it's an amazing thing. When God tells Gideon directly, I will deliver you, when God gives him these, these signs, these unmistakable signs, I will be with you, Gideon is doubtful. But when he overhears the interpretation of a stranger's dream, now he's ready to go to battle. He trusted the words of the enemy more than the word of God. That is not something for us to emulate. And so he does go to battle. He wins the battle, which I hope, again, you had a chance to study. And that brings us to our reading, the second reading today. So at the end of the battle, they have this great victory, and the people credit Gideon with the victory, and they want him to be their ruler, right? Rule over us. You know, you're, you're just, you just saved us. And Gideon says to them, I will not rule over you, and my son will not rule over you, The Lord will rule over you. That is a good answer. That is a good answer. This is really the the key 
to the book of Judges, right? Uh, originally, I was going to uh, have my sermon title, Who's Your Daddy? But I thought that was a little, <laughs> little, little too frivolous. Um, but that's the question. Who is going to be the king? Is it going to be God? Or is it going to be this uh, dynasty? Who will rule? Will it be a human dynasty? Or will it be God? Now, if, if Gideon had just kind of left it there with those words, and he had kept to those words, things would have probably turned out very, very differently. But Gideon makes a request, and if you look at his life, he takes a series of actions which completely contradict the statement that he just made. Even though he said, I'm not going to rule, my kids aren't going to rule, we're not going to set up a dynasty, God is your ruler, he says the right thing, but he fails to acknowledge the lordship of God with his actions. He fails to give God the glory and takes the credit for the victory himself. Right? Prior to the battle, Gideon had told the people, God will deliver the Midianites into your hand. God is the one who will be completely, fully responsible for this victory. But after the battle, when the people tell Gideon, hey, you saved us, you delivered us from the hand of the Midianites, he does not correct them. He doesn't say, no, 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 it wasn't me, it was God. He just, he just takes it. Yeah, I did it. In chapter 6 and 7, you see the narrator telling us of, of God's involvement, of God's actions, of God's deliverance, and Gideon acknowledging that. But in chapter 8, and as we move further along in the book of Judges, God's presence becomes less and less obvious. God's involvement becomes less clear. When God ought to become even more central to the story, God is pushed to the side, and what God does um, is forgotten. So even though Gideon here verbally refuses the throne, he ends up living like a king. He gathers gold. He gathers purple robes. He owns a harem. He has many wives and many sons. And he gets buried like a king. He lords it over the Israelites. He has these impulsive acts of retribution against his enemies and and against the Israelites. He takes additional booty from the spoils of war for himself rather than perhaps making an offering to God. He says, I'm not going to rule. But then he names one of his sons Abimelech, which means literally, my father is king. My father is king. That's, That's Abimelech. And worst of all, he collects these gold rings from the spoils of war to create this golden uh, ephod. The last time someone took a collection of gold rings was when Aaron did it to build a golden calf. And ephod is a, it's a, it's a priestly garment that the high priest would wear whenever he went to inquire of God. So I, I want you to Think about what's happening here. It, it doesn't seem like much. Okay, he's just asking for you know some some gold earrings, and then he's crafting this this vestment out of gold. But look at what he's done. In the beginning of his story, he destroyed the idols, his family idols, the worship of Baal. But now he's setting up in his hometown this this new symbol of his victory. He made it. Maybe he even wears it. 
it only it becomes not just a symbol of the victory that Gideon has brought for the people, of his deliverance of the people, but because now he's wearing it or because he created it, he can claim now, I speak for God alone. He can manipulate God's revelation. He can be saying, you know, this now, in me, in this ephod which I have created, this is the presence of God. He alone can now claim to speak for God and dispense God's will. So not only has he set himself up as a dynastic king, but he has taken on the role of high priest as well. And leads the people now down this road to idolatry. Right? And we know this. We can all say the right things and do all the wrong things. We see this all the time in life. Ben Franklin said it long ago, well done is better than well said. Well done is better than well said. Gideon said all the right words. I will not rule over you. God will be your king. God will rule over you. I mean, that is theologically correct. That's, those are good words to tell your people. Jesus is my Lord and Savior. Jesus is my Lord. Right? That's what we say. But is he? Does our actions really demonstrate that Jesus is the Lord, the King of my life? Does my speech, my attitudes, my priorities, the way that I spend my free time, my talents, my treasures, indicate prove to myself and to the people around me that Jesus really is the Lord of my life, my King, the Master. That my life is characterized by this Jesus whom I follow. Does my life characterize, is it characterized by Christ's love, grace, truth, and mercy? It's a lot easier to say God will rule over you. It's a lot easier to say Jesus is my Lord than to actually live it. And I think in that regard, Gideon is, is just like us. We make these uh, professions of faith that are really hopeful and aspirational. But the reality of, of our lives, most of the time, is that we fail to live up to them. And so I think at the very least, what Gideon tells me is that, that we need to be at least humble about our faith and vigilant about our faith. That we, it's so easy to take this road of taking some of the glory and credit away from God. And it's so easy for us to set up false idols, even inadvertently. You know, the this, this story of Gideon, I think, is, is ultimately uh, tragic, which, which I find a little bit ironic because, you know, Gideon is probably most well-known, at least in this country, for uh, Gideon International, you know, the people who uh, place Bibles in hotels, right? They, they took this name, um, trying to get people to read the Bible, uh, to, to trust God's word, and they named themselves after a guy who really had a tough time trusting God's word. Um, his story starts off so well. But like some other characters, like uh, King Saul and King Solomon, his ending is terrible. He leaves behind a mess. I know uh, some of you were very angry about another bad ending last Sunday. This is a really bad ending too. Right? We want good endings to our stories. We want our life stories 
and the stories that inspire us to end well. So when Gideon emerged as this kind of a timid leader who was fearful, but he was faithful enough to do what God told him to do, like we saw some hope. He began by destroying his family idols, but in the end, he builds another idol which leads the people down the same path. The Spirit of God clothed him in the beginning, but then he later clothed himself with this uh, ephod, and it became a snare to his people. He called the people to have God as their father, as king, but then he took on the trappings of kingship himself. His life started out very promising. There are allusions to other great biblical leaders like Elijah and Jacob, and especially comparisons to Moses. But instead of following in Moses' footsteps, Gideon ultimately took on the footsteps of his brother Aaron in creating this, this golden idol. The ancient historian Josephus called Gideon a man of moderation and a model of every virtue. He wasn't. He wasn't. He could have been a contender. But now, so I think for me, the lesson of his life, the warning of his life for me, is that for my story to end well, and I want it to end well, for me to leave behind a good legacy, I have to trust God's word and have God as my king. That is the only thing that will sustain my life and the lives of the people Around me. You cannot increase your faith. You cannot overcome your fears and anxieties with anything else. You cannot increase your faith by asking God for more and more signs. You cannot increase your faith by seeking out and having more superordinary spiritual experiences. And it will never grow by getting more and more signs. Because you take that path and you're always going to want one more sign. It's never going to be enough. You're going to find ways to explain it away and you're going to need something else. Right? I mean, Gideon received more personal signs from God than maybe anybody else in the Bible. Repeatedly, he asked God for specific signs and God indulged him. God gave him and answered every sign that he asked for. God even gave him a sign that he didn't even even that when he didn't even ask, God gave him an extra sign. But in the end, despite all these multiple signs, even the sign of this, this impossible victory with just 300 men, it did not keep him from following God. You would think that if you're able to defeat an army of 135,000 professional soldiers with 300 men, you would think, you would say, thank you, Jesus. I know this was all you because I have no training as a soldier. I'm just a fearful farmer. And with 300 guys, with no weapons other than you know, jars and torches, you delivered your people. Like, God, this had to be all you. And I, I mean, I did nothing. All I did was bring some, some jars. You would think that would be enough. That God does the impossible to prove to us that he is God. But not Gideon. Despite that and all these other signs, 
he continues to struggle with his doubts because he never fully trusted God's word. At least seven times in his story, he's described as being fearful. And though God tried to reassure him with signs and wonders, they did not ultimately help him because he refused at some level to trust God's word. And I think that's the crux of Gideon's problem and really our problems. I know that all the fears that I have in my life, all the uh, de- you know, depression, all the despair that I'm tempted toward, all the unhappiness in my life at the root of it is because I don't fully trust God's word. I know that's true in my life. That if I, if I trusted God's word for me, you know, the, the songs that we sang, if you trust those words, I am a child of God. Like, you, you really believe those words. You really believe what, what's written in Scripture about who you are, about who God says you are. You trust God's word, that there is no fear. Gideon just couldn't get to that point. Do you see his fundamental problem? He was looking for signs and just completely forgot that it was God who was giving him those signs. That, in fact, it was God who was speaking to him about those signs. I mean, right? He's the only judge in the book of Judges to whom God speaks directly. And God speaks to him repeatedly. God was talking, I mean, think about that. God was talking to him, and that was not enough. He wanted to see a sign. I mean, isn't the sign of God talking to you, isn't that enough? Isn't that better? And because he did not trust God's word, even when those signs came true as proof of God's word, he still failed to trust God's word. And I know this to be true. For some people, nothing will ever lead them to faith because they're not willing, they're not willing to trust God's word. No matter what. Gideon's life demonstrates what history has always shown and what Dostoevsky said. Miracles do not lead to faith. Faith leads to miracles. If you don't start with trusting God's word, no matter what you see, you'll be able to explain it away. No sign will be enough. In in a way, it's it's a kind of a cycle, isn't it? You, You kind of have to, at some point, you have to trust God's word. You have to obey God's word. And then it, you know, creates a cycle where you will see God working in your life and then you will trust God more and you'll trust God's word more and, but Gideon was never able to enter into that cycle and so his fears always dominated his life right? when we first met him he's hiding from the Midianites when God tells him to destroy his family idols he does it in the, in the middle of the night because he's afraid of getting caught when he does get caught instead of you know, uh, witnessing for God he remains silent and his father has to, to defend him. When the spirit of God possesses him, he asks for the double sign of the fleece. No matter what, he keeps asking for one more sign 
before he's able to take a step of faith. He refuses to take any action to trust any of God's word without one more reassurance. He's afraid to take any risk for God, to obey God, because he does not fundamentally trust God's word. That's the pattern of his life. Fear rules his life, not trust. Eileen Guter says this about such a life. You can live on bland food so as to avoid an ulcer, drink no tea or coffee or other stimulants in the name of health, go to bed early and stay away from nightlife, avoid all controversial subjects so as to never give offense, mind your own business and avoid involvement in other people's problems, spend money only on necessities and save all you can, and you can still break your neck in the bathtub and it will serve you right. I'm not sure that I go quite that far. But what Gideon's life reminds me is that I will never get more faith by looking for more signs before I obey. I will never overcome my fears by trying to get one more reassurance that everything will work out perfectly fine, that everything will be safe. Instead, I can overcome my fears by trusting that the one who calls me that the one who is with me is greater than my doubts and my fears. I will not fear death because God is with me. Because I know that God is greater than death. That in Jesus Christ, death has been defeated. And I have the word of God, the promise, the promise that those who trust in him shall never die. I have to trust that word. If I trust that word, then I don't have to be afraid. I don't even have to be afraid of my fear because I know and I trust that God is able to deliver because I know that God is greater than my fears. So that's the question that Gideon fails to answer for himself. Will I trust God and God's promises or will I let my own fears rule my life? And let me remind you, It's never about how much faith you have, but the one in whom you have that faith. It never matters how much faith you have. It never matters. It only matters that you trust in the Lord. I know this is a little bit off season, but you know, most years, you know that I have a lot of faith. I have a lot of faith every year at the beginning of the fall that the Buffalo Bills are going to win a lot of games, make the playoffs, and even win the Super Bowl. I do. I, have, I know you think I'm delusional, but, but I have a lot of faith that that's going to happen. You tell me it's misplaced, that it's useless to have such faith, that it doesn't matter how much I believe, but I believe anyway. Now, in contrast, suppose you're a fan of the New England Patriots. But suppose you have just very, very little faith that they're going to win any games. You have very little faith that they're going to make the playoffs and, and get to the Super Bowl. Whose faith is going to be rewarded at the end of the season? Does it matter that I have a lot of faith in my bills? And that some of you, who shall remain nameless, just have just a little bit of faith in the Patriots? 
It doesn't matter who has more faith. It matters who we have faith in. It's infinitely better to have a tiny bit of faith, a mustard seed amount of faith, Jesus said, right? Faith the size of a grain of sand in God than to have faith, a mountain-sized faith in anything else. Because the one that you are having faith in makes all the difference. And Gideon never understood that. He didn't realize that God is enough. Even the empowerment of the Spirit was not enough for Gideon. I know that you know, in some churches, they're all about you know, trying to uh, provide these kind of you know, really powerful spiritual experiences you know, over and over again. Um, to, you know, to, be, to be filled with the Spirit and to be refilled and so on. Um, it's, it's not going to sustain you. I see that in Gideon's life. It doesn't matter. You, can, you can't have faith in, in experiences. You've got to have faith in God and in God's word. That's the only thing that will sustain you. Even the permanent indwelling of God's spirit is no guarantee for faith nor automatic obedience for us. Because God preserves our freedom. We have to choose to trust God's word. Is God's word enough for you? Because God's word for most of your life, it's pretty clear. You don't need to ask God for additional signs for most of your life. Should I go to church today? Should I pray regularly? Should I be kind to my neighbors? You don't need reassurances for most of the questions you have on a daily basis. Henry Blackaby said, God's commands are designed to guide you to life's very best. You will not obey God if you do not believe him and trust him. And you cannot believe him if you do not love him. And you cannot love him unless you know him. And I would, and I would add, you cannot know him unless you trust God's word. Right? It's, again, it's, it's the cycle. Knowing and obedience and trust and love, it, it all goes together. And one reinforces the other. And so at some point, to break out of this cycle of sin and suffering and suff, supplication, you've got to take that step of faith and say, God... I'm going to trust your word today. I'm going to trust your word today. Can you imagine how differently the book of Judges might have turned out? The history of Israel had Gideon trusted God's word instead of giving into his fears. Instead of setting up this, this ephod and, and his family to, you know, to, and collecting gold to sort of provide for his family to, to um, provide for himself instead of trusting God. What if instead, as one commentator wondered, what if Gideon had said instead, after collecting all the gold and making the ephod, what if he said instead, take this, feed the hungry, clothe the naked, care for the widows and orphans, that we might share the blessings of God with those who need them most? What if God was really the king and the father of Gideon's life? What if Gideon really trusted God and tried not to build up his own family. What if we did the same? What if we really trusted God's word for us and lived by faith? 
What if we set aside our limitations, our fears, our self-doubts, and trust God and answer his God to engage in a life of faith and ministry and service to the world? Think of the overflow of life and the ways that we might bless the world if we did that, if we really trusted God's word. We don't need more signs to do God's work. We have God's word. We have God's word. Let that be enough. Trust the word of the Lord and see what God will do. Let's pray together. God, we, we are a people that um, are so easily distracted, so easily led toward uh, temptation, defeat, despair, toward idols that will never satisfy. We so easily listen to the voices around us instead of trusting your eternal word. God, help us to to break out of this, this cycle of trusting the world and instead to trust your word, your word that has proven, proven to be true. God, help us to take a step of faith to believe your word for us and to answer the call that you have for us to set our hands, our minds, our bodies to the work that you have for us. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.